Hey, good morning. Sorry I'm a little bit uh, late this morning on getting a post up here, but I wanted to go ahead and and um, uh, and answer a question that uh, came in on the comments section on our YouTube channel, I think about a week and a half ago. I apologize. Uh, this is from Steve in England, and uh, I've been wanting to ask you a question uh, for a number of months. Concerning 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-4, this passage in its context appears to be clearly referring to the rapture. However, it is probably the main stumbling block I have to believing in a pre-tribulation rapture. It appears, as you state in this video that he's commenting on, uh, that the Thessalonian Christians were concerned that they may have missed the rapture. Uh, it seems, though, uh, that Paul goes to speak about things that must take place before the rapture takes place. Uh, for example, verse 3, the great apostasy and the revealing of the man of lawlessness. If the Antichrist is not to be revealed until midway through the Great Tribulation, then how can there be a pre-trib rapture? Thank you once again for your teaching. God bless you and your ministry, Steve in England. Thank you for the encouragement. And of course, thanks for the uh, for the note. Uh, I love the spirit in which it's asked. I love the idea of engaging on this too. Um, so yeah, it's uh, obviously no secret to anybody who's been watching. I am a pre-trib guy. And um, let's go ahead and open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's look at the passage um, in, uh, in its context there. And, and we're going to actually read more than just verses 1 to 4. We're going to read um, further along here to kind of build the larger uh, sense of what Paul is saying here. So in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord is come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion or the apostasy, the forsaking, comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, uh, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, uh, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's taken out of the way. Uh, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, uh, false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure and unrighteousness. So Paul is discussing here something which I think is pretty telling that he had talked to them about previously. When was he with them previously? Well, in Acts 17, he spent three Sabbaths, so roughly three weeks with them, in which he planted the church, established leadership, taught them about discipleship, all the basic things that you would expect as he planted the church, and maybe something you don't expect uh, in a, a young church plant, and that is he poured himself into teaching them eschatology uh, in, in regard, and pretty sophisticated eschatology. They knew about things like the Antichrist, the Day of the Lord, the Rapture of the Church. We learn about this from not only Second Thessalonians, but also First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Uh, and elsewhere, we learn uh, throughout these two letters a lot of things about what Paul had taught them, and again, not the least of, of which was eschatology. So it's something that we uh, like to sort of include pretty regularly in our own posting here because I think it's just a regular part of 
discipleship. It's a great hope that we should build upon. Okay, so regarding the question about the preacher rapture and doesn't 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 really kind of kind of negate the idea because look at what's supposed to happen before the rapture takes place. Well, I would suggest with respect that to understand what Paul is describing as the events taking place uh, in 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 Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, Paul starts by pointing out that their concern is that they had arrived at the day of the Lord, uh, and 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 the reason they thought this is because as persecutions are coming down, um, you know the uh, Caesar is coming against Christians and this kind of thing uh, at this point, and, and will continue to and through the rest of the first century and the church into the second century. Uh, and so the thought is, okay, what about those who have died and they've perished before, you know, they've not perished, but they've they've died prior to Christ's coming. Um, now, we know that Paul taught them about the rapture because we see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where he talks about the idea of being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. A separate and subsequent or prior incident, I should say, uh, in relation to the second coming, which comes later. Uh, so what about the passage here in Second Thessalonians? Well, again, let's take a look at it here. Um, again, the, the opening couple of verses speak of the idea that the church uh, is potentially being misled by a letter purporting to be from Paul, um, uh, or, you know, there's people talking about it, uh, so there's a spirit behind that that is seeking to deceive them, and Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you, because that day, what day? The day of the Lord. So first off, Paul is viewing here the day of the Lord, not necessarily the rapture, particularly at this point. He, I, think, I think it does encompass this idea. But Paul's focus here is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will not come until, and then he goes on to describe, uh, until the apostasy comes, uh, and then the man of, and also the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction or son of perdition, who again exalts himself above everything that is called God. We read about him in Revelation 13 and such. So Paul is saying the day of the Lord will not, in other words, you're not in the day of the Lord until the apostasy happens and also the the, uh, son of perdition is revealed, the Antichrist. So you know you're not in the day of the Lord unless the Antichrist comes on the scene. Now what that means is that Paul is saying that whatever they think is Antichrist right now, whoever they think that might be is on the scene actually is not on the scene. In, in answering this question, Paul is saying he's not here yet, so you're not in the day of the Lord yet. These are indicators of when you will know you're in the day of the Lord. Um, now, by the way, that doesn't necessarily preclude, preclude the idea of his belief that believers would not be here in the day of the Lord. He is simply saying that, look, the day of the Lord is marked by this. If it's not happening, you're not in it, okay? Now, by the way, as an aside, I'll say this. I, I don't necessarily hold this view, but I will suggest this because it's um, it's growing in some popularity. The idea that the word for apostasy there, the idea of falling away, some are seeing that as actually being a reference to the rapture and not an apostasy in, in the sense that we classically think of it. Um, the idea of people sort of departing from the faith and that kind of thing. Um, I don't think the rapture is in view there personally. I'm, I'm not personally convinced of that. I can see where the argument can be made, but um, the only other time that term is used in the New Testament is when uh, in Acts 2, in reference to Moses and the idea of the accusation of people sort of forsaking Moses in this kind of thing. Uh, Was it Acts 2? 
Uh, it just slips me at the moment. I forgot to mark the reference in my Bible here. But anyway, I think there's one other time in the New Testament it's used, and it has to do with literally falling away from the teaching of Moses and such. So I, it seems that from consistency's sake, context-wise, I think what is in view here are believers, not believers really, truly, but people who are at least purporting to believe, uh, falling away. Now, so this is marked again by the idea of the Antichrist coming on the scene uh, and all of this. Now, Notice as it goes on here, and this is why it's really important to read um, beyond just like verse 4 and 5. Uh, verse 5, he says, don't you remember I told you about these things when we were together? In verse 6, he goes on to say, and you know what is restraining him. Restraining who? The son of perdition, the man of sin, the Antichrist. You know what is restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time. In other words, he's not on the scene yet because he can't be on the scene yet because he is being restrained by something or someone. Okay, so I'll read on for a second. I'll come back to that thought. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom Jesus will destroy. So there is a coming Antichrist, this man of sin, However, he's not on the scene yet because he can't be on the scene yet because there is someone or something restraining him. Now, here's where there is certainly some debate and discussion. Different camps in terms of uh, the timing of the rapture and that kind of thing um, do dispute who or what's in view in regard to this idea of the restrainer. Uh, in, in some views, the idea is that the restrainer being spoken of here is actually Michael the Archangel. Um, the view I hold, which is typical, common for a pre-tribulational view, is that the restrainer that's in view here is the Holy Spirit insofar as he is at work in the church. Uh, a restraining influence through the church as the vehicle by which he restrains until the time comes that the church is removed and then the lawless one can be revealed. And that's why Paul says, what, and, and whether or not you agree with that interpretation of what, uh, what or who the restrainer is, uh, the point is that the man of sin isn't going to be revealed until the restrainer is taken out of the way. Okay, so it's at, in concert with the idea of the rapture, the, if in fact the restrainer is the Holy Spirit working through the church, and the church is then removed in the rapture, it then follows that the Antichrist comes on the scene after that point, okay? Now, let me touch on the idea here uh, about the uh, when the Antichrist is revealed. The Antichrist is not revealed, per se, in the second half of the week. The Antichrist is actually revealed at the beginning of the week. In fact, if you will, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27 are what are known as the prophecy of uh, Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks or the 70 week prophecy. 70 periods of seven years uh, are going to take place from the beginning point, which is where um, um, where the, the command goes forth to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah, the prince. Okay. So in other words, uh, there is a um, uh, 490 year period of time that is in view in this prophecy. Um, 483 of those years take place up to the coming of Messiah, which is, of course, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. We're going to actually celebrate that on Palm Sunday this weekend. Um, the last seven-year period of time happens after a gap, which we now know to be the church age. 
at the end of the church age, the 70th week begins. How do we know this? Because this prophecy that is given, um, as it says in verse 24, these 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city. In other words, Daniel, the Jews, and Jerusalem. Okay, So the prophecy that's given here has to do with Israel, and in particular, uh, Jerusalem, the people in the, in the city. And so in view there, uh, the events that take place have to do with that group and that city. Now, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, or when the 70th week begins, we read about this in, in verse 27, and he shall make a, cov- a strong covenant with many for one week, or one seven-year period of time. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now we know from this passage, Matthew 24, um, also in Mark and Luke, there's the discussion of the, uh, it's actually the discourses, um, Jesus' words on this, this period of time is given in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 24 tends to be the one we go to most often. It's called the Olivet Discourse. In chapter 24, verse 15, there is mention of, as Daniel does, this idea of an abomination. Jesus tells us it's the abomination of desolation. It stands in the holy place as is spoken of by Daniel the prophet. This is where he's speaking of it as well as later in chapter 12. Um, And so there's mention here of this. Now, um, the Antichrist isn't revealed per se when he violates the covenant. This is when the midway point happens. We know he violates the covenant at that point. Uh, very, very likely through the, the what Paul talks about and what John talks about then in Revelation 13 of the image that is set up in the holy place there. That is the way he desolates the temple. Uh, he sets up this image or false prophet along with him. They, there's this image set up of the Antichrist in the holy place. At that point, uh, the Jews are supposed to flee from Jerusalem, as Jesus tells them, because this is now uh, really marking the beginning of what we call the Great Tribulation. But the Antichrist himself is actually made known to be the Antichrist by virtue of signing a seven-year covenant with Israel. And so when that covenant is signed, if there are any believers on the earth during that time, I happen to believe that the church will be raptured prior to this point where the, the covenant is signed. Again, I think this is partly what is in view when Paul is talking in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about the restrainer being taken out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed. If you hold a mid-trib view then what you're saying is, uh, and it makes sense if you hold that view, that you would say that at the midway point, that's when the Antichrist is made known. I would argue that from Daniel's prophecy, the real key indicator to his coming on the scene is the fact that he signs this seven-year covenant at all. He ends up violating at the three-and-a-half-year mark, and you could argue that no one will really know. Maybe there's multiple seven-year contracts signed or covenants signed, and how do you know it's the Antichrist until he violates it? Okay, I can see that point. But I do, I would say that, you know, just taking straightforwardly what Daniel says, the Antichrist coming on the scene happens when the covenant is signed. Um, now, I think that there are reasons why the church would need to be gone uh, by this point. Some of this revolves around the question of when does the wrath of God start? For example, in, uh, in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Uh, verse 9, we are told that we're not appointed to wrath. In other words, when God starts to bring his wrath upon the earth, we will not be here for that. Okay, so one other question in this discussion of eschatology is, when does God's wrath officially start? 
Well, I would argue that it starts with the releasing of Antichrist, which would be in Revelation chapter 6, the breaking of the first seal. Um, now, at this point, if you hold a different view, you're kind of looking at me with a frown on your face and all that kind of thing because you don't agree with that. I understand that. We have differing views on this. And that's okay. We're brothers, sisters. This is all good. But this is one of those points where we would disagree as far as the timing of the rapture goes. I think the releasing of Antichrist, which I'll call it the releasing of Antichrist, because he's not going anywhere until Jesus breaks that seal and he comes on the scene. Um, I do think that that constitutes the beginning of God's wrath on the earth. Uh, the fact that he's not pouring out, he's not, trumpets aren't blowing and, and bowls aren't being poured out yet, doesn't mean that wrath isn't already now on the scene, because Antichrist is basically God's unleashing of this one who's going to bring to a consummation the world's rebellion against him that's going to be judged. I think that this is not a good thing or even a passive thing on God's part. I think this is part of his opening up the wrath uh, on the earth. And so, again, these are distinctions that that are part of what it uh, what are in view in a pre-tribulational rapture. So anyway, I just want to kind of touch on a few different things here in that regard to kind of explain um, why I would say that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 uh, doesn't really negate the idea of a pre-trib rapture. I think it supports it. I think in view of the overall discussion of what's in view with the wrath of God, the idea of um, when the Antichrist truly is on the scene and is known to be on the scene. Now, to the world, he won't be known to be on the scene until he violates the covenant. He's going to be seen as a man of peace to the world outside. But to believers who know what the Bible says about him, we understand that really he enters the scene when he signs the covenant. Um, uh, so anyway, so just uh, hopefully that kind of helps to fill in some of the blanks uh, as far as uh, why I think the preacher view is more supported by that passage than less supported by it. Um, again, a big part of it uh, in regard to that passage specifically does have to do with the idea of who the restrainer is. Um, people like Jacob Prash, for example, uh, writes prolifically on on um, his view on that kind of thing and and uh, and why he doesn't necessarily. I, I, if I remember, gosh, now it's been a little while since I read his thing, but I'm, he's he does not hold that view as far as the restrainer and all that kind of thing. Or the um, gosh, I guess I shouldn't say that too clear unless I go back and revisit that. But just I just happened to glance over in his books on my shelf there. But um, in any case. Ah, shoot, I shouldn't have gone there. I don't remember. I don't want to misrepresent him. Uh, anyway, so whatever the case. But um, but in terms of the differing views about when the rapture happens, the pre-trib view uh, espouses those things that I was just describing there, among others. But but in regard to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think it's good for us to read the passage in its entirety and recognize the restraining until, and then he's on the scene and that kind of thing. I think the rapture is more in view beyond the opening passage of 2 Thessalonians 2, whereas the day of the Lord is really the most in view in those earliest passages. And then it helps us understand as he continues down that passage that um, when um, when the Antichrist comes on the scene, it will be only after the restrainer is taken out of the way. If, in fact, the restrainer is speaking of the church, the Holy Spirit working through the church, then that lines up quite well. And I think, if not, I think there are still other supports for a preacher of rapture, but in terms of that passage, I think that's a, um, that's a helpful element to understand that perspective. Um, I guess one last thing on that, just before we close, that when we talk about the Holy Spirit um, being removed in terms of his working through the church, we should also distinguish the idea that because the Holy Spirit is God, 
He's not a force. He's not, you know, uh, non-personal in any way. And triune nature of the divine being, the Godhead, the Father, uh, Father, Eternal Word, and the Holy Spirit, or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is very God of very God in the same way that Christ himself, the eternal word, is in the same way that the Father is. They're distinct, but yet within the triune unity of the the divine Godhead, he is God. And so when we say that the restrainer is taken out of the way, we want to be careful to say what we mean by that is that his working through the church ends at that point. But he's everywhere. There's nowhere you can go that the Holy Spirit isn't. Uh, when David says, where can I go to flee from your presence and where can I hide? You know, if I go to the heights of heaven or the depths of Sheol, you're there. Well, that's true of the Holy Spirit. He's everywhere all the time, always in every, you know, present way. And so um, we don't mean the Holy Spirit is no longer in the world any more than we could say God is no longer in the world because we're saying the same thing at that point. So the Holy Spirit is still there. He's still active. He is still working, but he's not working through the church. Okay, and that's, a, and that's an important thing just to make sure we clarify so we don't make it sound as though we're saying that the Holy Spirit's not working in the world anymore. He is, but the church is no longer in the world. And so just, you know, not a semantical thing. It's actually kind of an important point to make. So, all right, well, hopefully that helps a little bit. Um, as always, uh, as was with the case with Steve, if you have questions or uh, thoughts or ideas that you want to share, you can always share them in our comments section or you can send me an email at uh, pastorbrian at calvarychapelfranklin.com. Um, I love the interactions, and uh, once again, tonight, April 4th at 5 p.m. Central Standard Time, we'll be doing our next live Q&A. Hope you can join us for that. Uh, Comment section will be open, so you can type in your questions, and we'll go ahead and try and address those. But again, thanks for joining. Always very, very thankful to be able to spend time opening the Word together and considering these things. And uh, until next time, the Lord bless and keep you, make His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace forever. Father, we do ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.